Thank you very much. Very solemn story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We're going to look at this story in more detail in the scriptures. Something that we do every week is we set aside time to study the Bible, to open it up, to look at what it has to say to us. This summer, we've been in a series called Stories of the King, where we've been focusing particularly on the Gospels and on the life of Jesus. We've been following along the Jesus Storybook Bible, the order of stories there, skipping through different Gospel stories. Um, And we're finding ourselves coming to the end of the series now as we look at the death on a cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this week in our Stories of the King series, we're calling it Surprising Savior. Surprising Savior. And I would ask you if you have a Bible to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to kind of skip through Matthew chapter 27 and chapter 28. There's a lot of material to cover. And as always, encourage you to continue reading through the gospel stories uh, for yourself. Um, next week, we're going to focus in on how to live in community during a pandemic. We're going to just look at a kind of a special uh, one-week focus on that. And then after that, we're going to introduce a new series through the book of Daniel, through the book of Daniel. So that'll be exciting. Um, Daniel, if you're not too familiar, is an Old Testament prophet, really interesting tells the story of people who were taken into exile from Israel during a time of Israel's disobedience. They were taken into Babylon. So there are great lessons in the book of Daniel on how to live as people who love God but are in a place where God is not honored. And so we're really looking forward to the book of Daniel. We're finishing up kind of a theme and a title for that series. It'll be about 12 or 13 weeks long. I think right now we're going to call it What to Do when the world falls apart. Does that sound like a pretty good, pretty good title? Yeah. Hopefully that'll fit where we're feeling, where we're living right now as well. Um, so back to this week, we're going to be in Matthew 27 and 28, and I want to focus in on the surprise of how Jesus saves us. It is not the way that we thought it would go. This is not the way that the disciples expected the story to go. It's hard for us to step back into time and recognize how surprising it really is. Uh, One of my favorite surprise scenes was from a movie I saw when I was a kid. I was five years old, the 1978 version of Superman. So I don't know if y'all saw that one. That was with Christopher Reeve. There's this great scene where Lois Lane is having trouble with a a news helicopter on top of a very tall building. The, The helicopter starts to crash. She falls out of the helicopter, and she is falling hundreds of feet. And there's a crowd that's begun to gather gather underneath on the ground, looking up at all the stuff, the craziness with the helicopter. And everybody's just freaking out, right? Because they're thinking, oh no, the helicopter's going to crash. Now this woman is falling. Um, Everyone is just horrified. They don't know what's going to happen next. And of course, Superman surprises everyone and swoops in and catches Lois Lane as she's falling hundreds, thousands of feet, however far it is. It's like a hundred-story building, I think. She's so shocked. She's so surprised. And it's a classic scene because he says, it's okay, miss, I've got you. And Lois Lane says, you've got me, who's got you? And it's one of my favorite surprise moments, like, okay, I see that you've got me, but how is this even working? And that's often how we feel in our faith with Jesus. Like, okay, Jesus, I, I hear that you're saving me. I got it. I know I'm supposed to have faith in you, Jesus, but, but this is not the way I thought it would go. And That's probably harder for us because we've heard the story rehearsed so many times. But for the first century disciples, they were in utter shock and terror. This was absolutely a surprise. This was not how they thought their Savior was going to save them. They believed that their Savior was going to be a war hero that was going to crush his enemies. That is what they believed. And so let's read the beginning of this section, the beginning of this story, Uh, We'll look at chapter 27, verses 27 through 31, just to kind of introduce the story, introduce the direction it's going, and then we'll look at more of it as the morning uh, moves forward. So starting in verse 27, remember last week Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Then they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him 
and led him away to crucify him. This is not the story of a conquering hero. This is someone being mocked and beaten and murdered. This is not the way we expect to be saved. We have a surprising Savior. Good news, it's not the end of the story. There's more. You know, you've heard the story. Uh, But let me pray for us and we'll look at it in more detail. God, we thank you that you are a good Savior, one that we can count on. And Father, I recognize that you surprise us in the ways that you deal with us. And really, this original story of your death and resurrection is is hard to believe in many ways. Shocking, surprising. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us as we look at this story, that your Spirit would be with us, that we would recognize the supernatural reality of this story from the outside, of a story that doesn't go along with our human experience, a story that shocks us, a story that surprises us. Help us to see you as our Savior in this story of your death and resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the normal way that we expect to be saved would be through success, right? Through a warrior king that would smite his enemies, chop them all down with a sword or with his fist. We also expect to find salvation in normalcy, the way life normally works, right? The routines that we're used to. And then finally, I think we long to see salvation in a way that maintains our independence, right? But our Savior is going to surprise us, and all three of those expectations are going to be broken. We're going to see a Savior who saves us through tragedy. Tragedy, not success, but tragedy and brokenness. We're going to see a Savior who saves us by this anomaly, this unusual, not normal reality of the resurrection. And then finally, we're going to see a Savior who saves us into a mandate. He's going to give us marching orders. He doesn't save us for independence so that we can be our own boss and do our own thing. He saves us to serve, to serve him and to serve others. He saves us into a mandate. So the first thing I want us to consider as we look at this surprising Savior is the way that he saves us through tragedy. He saves us through tragedy. This is not how we thought it would go. Um, The dictionary defines tragedy as an event in life that evokes feelings of sorrow or grief. His salvation starts with an event that evokes sorrow or grief. Second definition of a tragedy is a disastrous circumstance or event, such as a serious illness, financial ruin, or fatality. That seems to apply as well. And then the third definition I got from the dictionary is this one. A serious play with a tragic theme often involving a heroic struggle and the downfall of the main character. This kind of checks all those boxes, right? Jesus saves us through a tragedy. This is not how we expected it to go. Let's look at chapter 27, verses 35 through 46. So skipping over a bit of the story, but picking up in verse 35, it says, And when they had crucified him, they hung him on the cross, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Now, I just want to remind you what crucifixion entailed. He'd already been beaten and mocked. We read that part. He'd been whipped, 39 lashes. He would have been whipped with whips that would have little bits of bone and metal in them, so literally ripping the flesh off of his back. Then he would have carried his cross up this hill. If you know the story, we're skipping over this part, but they had to have someone help him carry the cross because he could barely make it. He was already mostly dead at this point. And then they nail him to a cross, and then they hang him on a cross. And a cross is this gruesome, brutal way to die. Most people that would die on the cross would actually die from asphyxiation. It would be like drowning because they're in so much pain and they're hanging, they have to push themselves up to take a breath. And they keep doing that until they just can't do it anymore. And so they crucified Jesus. This is the kind of death that our Savior died. This is truly a tragedy. Verse 36 says, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They were mocking him, not knowing that they were actually also making a prophetic statement. Verse 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads 
and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The way they reckon time, this is the sixth hour of daylight, so maybe around noon to the ninth hour around three. So there was just darkness in the land. This tragedy of our Savior being killed, being murdered, being hung on a cross coincided with a cosmic reaction of some kind, some kind of visual confirmation that this truly was a tragedy. Darkness fell across the land. And it says in verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. Jesus now even confirming that this is a tragedy, that his heart even has been broken. Now, if you've heard this story before, you may have heard that, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a line from a psalm. And so this is a really beautiful example for us in this great moment of heartache, of death, of tragedy. Jesus is singing a hymn, a worship song. And just this is not my full application, but this is a little mini application here, something that we can do when we are in our darkest moments. In our darkest moments, it is really helpful if we have learned some of the psalms, some of the hymns, some of the spiritual songs that remind us of who God is. You see, he's crying out here this line from the psalm. Many commentators think he was probably muttering the entire psalm. He was at least wanting us to think about the entire psalm. He wasn't just screaming out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was probably singing the rest of it, or at least remembering the rest of it, because he would have memorized the entire Psalter, is what we call it sometimes, the entire psalm book that's the the hymn book, the worship book of the Old Testament. This is what Jews would have sung and memorized. And so we see Jesus in this tragedy, in this heartbreak, of feeling separated from the Father, of feeling the full weight of humanity's sin on his back, crying out, God, where are you? And I want to ask us, do we have permission to say that same thing to God in our dark and hard and difficult moments? Do you feel the freedom to tell God when you feel abandoned and forsaken? Or have you fallen into this myth that you can't talk to God unless you clean up your language first? Have you fallen into that? Now let me be clear. God is the all-holy one, the king of the universe. We owe him respect. We owe him worship. We owe him praise. But we also have the full freedom to cry to God. The full freedom to say, as the Psalms say repeatedly, how long, O Lord, Where are you, God? Why do I feel all alone right now? You can say that to God. Number one, just practically, God already knows you're thinking it. So it's better to just be honest, right? But number two, we have this repeated pattern in Scripture. The entire book of Psalms does that again and again. God, where are you? What has happened? Why have you abandoned me? Why is the world so messed up? Why is my family so messed up? Why is my nation so messed up? Why is this business that I'm involved with so broken? Why is my relationship so messed up and hurtful? We have the freedom to cry out to God on any of those places. God, where are you? What has happened? Why does this hurt so badly? And we see Jesus model that as, as well. Another, another lens to think about this. Jesus is undergoing one of the most evil things that's ever happened in the history of the world, right? Like Jesus is the only person ever who is actually innocent. When bad things happen to us, we're tempted to think we're innocent, right? We're like, God, I haven't done anything wrong. Why are bad things happening to me? That's what we think, right? But we know with any serious reflection, we're actually not innocent. We've committed cosmic treason and rebellion against God. 
But Jesus is actually innocent. This is genuinely evil. Jesus is dying for you and for me. This is a horrible tragedy, and yet Jesus doesn't have to work out that entire systematic theology to talk to God. Do you see that? He doesn't have to say, well, God, I know Romans 8.28 says that all things work for good for those who love me, and so I'm not going to really cry right now. I'm just going to put on a stoic face and act like everything's fine, right? Like he, does, he doesn't do that. He cries. He screams out to God. I really want to press you that when things are terrible in your life, it's okay to tell God, God, things are terrible. This is a huge application. One of the most important parts of a a follower of Christ's mental health is to be honest with God, to cry to God. When you're in the midst of tragedy, to admit, God, I'm in the midst of tragedy. Help me. Now, it's amazing. I want to encourage you not just in principle to cry out to God, but to read Psalm 22 specifically. Because when you read Psalm 22, just like the way all the other Psalms move, there's this movement from raw, honest, emotional, unedited crying, right? You don't have to edit yourself. You can just cry to God. You can tell him your doubts, your fears, your pains. You can tell him, but then you see the Psalms move from there. Psalm 22, it says, yet you are holy. Yet, God, you are good. I'm trying to work this out, Lord. I'm trying to make my theology make sense with this. I'm crying. I'm in pain. This hurts. I don't know where you are yet. God, you are holy. Yet, God, I know I can trust you. And as Psalm 22 moves on, it comes to this really fascinating end where it says, yet I will, I will praise you. I will tell others in the congregation about you. I'm paraphrasing here. It's a long psalm. And then it implies at the end that this is not the end of the story. That's a really beautiful implication in Psalm 22, that Jesus, the Son of God, is bearing the weight of the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, He's nailed to the cross because he volunteered to go there for you and for me. He's dying. He's being torn to shreds. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know he's leading us to the rest of the story. The rest of the story in Psalm 22 is that's not where the story stops. That that's not the end. That there is more to the story. And so I encourage you to start with the confession of your grief, your tragedy, your pain, your tears, knowing that there's more to the story. That's the next thing we'll look at in the story here. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this in literature is The Last of the Mohicans movie, great movie that's like 20, 30 years old now. I think I grabbed a picture of this. The hero, Hawkeye, has to leave the woman he loves, Cora, I think her name is, and he just says, stay alive, stay alive, and he has to jump out into this waterfall. He has to basically run away. It looks like a tragedy. It looks like he's abandoning her, but he has to leave her in this terrible moment of the movie. Why? So he can come back and rescue her. So we've got to be honest about the tragedy. Like we've got to look at the painful thing we're going through and and say, along with Jesus, my, my God, my God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why does this hurt so bad? God, what are you up to? God, I don't understand. Why, Lord? And be honest about that, but know that there's more to the story. Know that rescue is coming. My wife and I have been listening to a podcast lately that talks about um, in counseling and in personal healing as you go through difficult things, we have this tendency to want to just skim over the hard things in life, right? As you're remembering bad things that you've gone through, you have this tendency to say, well, yeah, but, you know, they did the best they could, right? Or, yeah, it's, it was okay. And just skim through the ugliness of the experiences that you've endured. It's really helpful to actually name the ugliness. To actually stare it in the face and say, that was bad, this was bad. At a personal level, at a corporate level, right? Talking about our family, talking about organizations that we belong to, talking about our country, talking about friend groups, say, that was wrong. The only way we can move on from things that were wrong is by saying they were wrong, (laughs) by saying this was terrible. And so here in the greatest tragedy that's ever happened, Jesus is taking your sin upon himself. He's absorbing the wrath of God. He's taking all of that so that you and I can be rescued, 
so that God would see you if you trust him, so that God would see me if I trust him as sinless, as perfect, as healed, as righteous, the scripture says. Do you believe that? And it takes staring the ugliness in its face. So I was talking about, you know, naming family ugliness as ugliness, naming group ugliness, issues you have at work, issues, you know, in our society. We got to name the ugliness, right? But really it all comes back to our hearts. That's the most important part. To be a Christian is to be a person that doesn't just name the ugliness out there. Yeah, there's sin over there. Yeah, my family was messed up. Yeah, our country has made mistakes. You know, like, we don't just name the sin and the badness out there. We look at ourselves. And we say, as bad as everything is out there, as messed up as my family was, as messed up as my boss is, as messed up as this society is, whatever it is, I'm a sinner. I personally have committed cosmic treason. When I look at my own soul, it is a tragedy. I have not loved people the way I should love. I have not done the righteous thing the way I should have done the righteous thing. I look at that ugliness and I turn to God and I say, yeah, God, you are holy and you have made the way. You have taken my sin upon yourself. So I invite you at every level to be honest about the ugliness, to be honest about the tragedy, but most of all, don't miss the personal application of looking at your own heart and saying, I need a savior. I am broken. My soul is tragic. And I need a hero that comes from the outside to take my sin and to give me what we'll see in the next part, resurrection life. He gives us as a free gift, his resurrection power, his life, his righteousness, his goodness. So let's look at the next section. He not only saves us through tragedy, but he saves us by anomaly. Anomaly. You want to practice saying that word? Try saying that word. It's a hard word. Anomaly. Can you say that? Anomaly. Okay, we got some mask murmuring there, but he saves by anomaly. Here's the dictionary definition of anomaly, something that deviates from the norm or expectations. Remember earlier I said, we want to be saved through normalcy, right? Like, why can't my family be normal? You ever said things like that? Like, why can't we just do normal things? He deviates from the norm. Second definition is something strange and difficult to identify or classify. Jesus saves us through an anomaly. Um, And again, we have to put ourselves back in the the kind of world of the first disciples. Remember, these were not um, dumb, gullible people that believed in every sort of supernatural thing that could possibly take place. That's how we tend to think of it because we're very sophisticated, smart people with fancy phones. We think they were dumb. They actually understood death and how dead death could be better than you and I do, right? So when they watched their Savior bleed and die and be tortured. They knew he was dead, probably even more than you and I do because they had a much deeper and daily understanding of death and decay. We're kind of insulated from it. We're kind of distant from it in our culture. They knew it. They knew how unstoppable death was. And so this is really surprising for them as these stories continue to unfold here. It gets Really weird. Let me read a little transition and then we'll get into some of the weirdness of the resurrection. Let's look at verse 47. So some of the bystanders uh, heard him say, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they said, this man's calling Elijah. So they just misunderstood what he said. They thought he was crying out to Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge. They filled it with sour wine, put it on a a reed, gave it to him to drink. So they're reaching up, kind of trying to give him something to drink. 49, the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They're still kind of mocking him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and then yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, this is where it gets really weird. This is where the anomaly stuff starts, right? Verse 51 says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The temple of the curtain, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So they had this holy of holies. I grabbed a picture of this, actually. I think I've got an old woodcut picture of the temple curtain being torn into. Do we have that? Can we put that on screen? So in the Holy of Holies, this would be the place that would demonstrate the holiness of God. That's where they would keep the law. They would only make that uh, once a year day of atonement sacrifice in there. Most of the time they stayed out of there because that was like the inner presence of God's holiness. And so there's this huge curtain to guard that section of the temple symbolizing that there's a barrier between us and God. That's what the curtain was all about. 
the curtain was like a warning sign. You know, it was like a warning flag that said, beware, stay out. And we're told that this uh, warning flag, that this tape that said caution, that this fence that kept us from polluting the holiness of God, that was torn down miraculously. This is not a curtain like your mom would have, you know, imagine like sheer curtains that you can kind of see through or something. This is like very, very thick. Um, This would have been more like the equivalent of like a folding dividing wall in today's standard. You know, you go to a banquet room and you've got these big accordion folding walls that dampen the sound and close it off. You know, it's like a folding wall basically. And it was just ripped in half. Along with an earthquake, the splitting of rocks, the world was falling apart, but don't miss the symbolism in all this chaos of the curtain being torn. The thing that separated us from God has now been removed. The symbolism is because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God once and for all. Hebrews goes into great detail about this. What used to be an ongoing symbol, a shadow, A foretaste is now accomplished once and for all through Jesus. We're now brought into the presence of the holiness of God. You're no longer, if you trust in Jesus, on the outside waiting, okay? If you're a follower of Christ, I want you to understand that God's not waiting for you to have that perfect day, and then he'll invite you into his presence. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are in his presence now. God is with you. He gives you his Holy Spirit to seal and prove and guarantee his closeness to you. If you trust in Jesus, the curtain's torn down in your relationship between you and God. You've been brought in to God's presence. You are in the inner inner circle. I prefer the familial language. He's adopted you. He delights in you. He is your good, good father. There's no no more earning or proving yourself to get in to that room. You're in the room. You're with them, and that's the beautiful symbolism. Hebrews says it this way Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Since we've got this priest that's brought us into the presence of God, none of the others could do that, but Jesus has done it. Then let us hold fast to this confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So we've got one who understands what it's like to go through the tragedy. He's gone through the tragedy. He's that kind of high priest. He can empathize with us. He can sympathize with us. Yet, he hasn't sinned. Yet, he's the perfect hero that vanquished our true foe. And our true foe wasn't the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders or the other people that killed Jesus. Our true foe is sin and death. And Jesus defeated that. So Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The anomaly of the craziness that Jesus accomplished should press us in to being closer to God, should lead us to love God more, to draw nearer to his throne, to pursue him more. There's so much weirdness here. I want to skip down to chapter 28, verse 5. Oh, wait, no, one more, one more weird thing before we go on. Verse 52, look at verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. How about that? Those of you that are not really Bible readers, haven't read the Gospels much, are like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I've never heard that part. Have you heard that part before? Jesus dies on the cross, and oh yeah, some people come out of their graves and walk around, hang out with people. There's some like resurrection, some early resurrection that takes place. This is bizarre. This is one of the weirdest part of the gospel stories. And as Christians, we need to be not afraid of the supernatural anomaly of salvation that we have in Christ. There's, there's craziness here. Saints of old were rising from their graves, hanging out with people, chatting with people. Then something even crazier takes place. You ready? You ready for something really weird? Something even weirder happens. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. We need to 
number one, not be embarrassed by the supernatural anomaly of our faith in Jesus, by the supernatural results, crazy resurrection people walking around, God healing people. We need to not be afraid of that stuff. Yet, we also need to recognize the greatest miracle is people saying, Jesus is the Son of God. The greatest miracle is us trusting him. That's the crazy miracle that we should be searching out in our lives and in the lives of our friends. Are you praying for that kind of miracle? That human beings, hardened people like the centurion would actually say, this Jesus, he's the Son of God. This is the Savior I need to follow. Are you praying for that kind of anomaly to take place in your life? As we pray for these things, God makes these things happen. Verse 55, uh, 55, there are also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among them whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is fascinating. They were hanging around, right? The women were hanging around. Another anomaly, you got all these brave men cowering in a corner, right? And the women, they, they have faith in Jesus. They're close by. They're watching. Now, we'll skip down. We've got some other men men that come out to bury his body and put it away properly, but also uh, Mary and the others are still close by watching. And so I want to skip down to verse 5 now. Chapter 28, verse 5. We're into the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. The women now come to his grave to take care of the body because I think the way we understand this is that it was kind of a rush job when Joseph of uh, Arimathea, Joseph uh, Nicodemus, these other guys get the body, we think it was kind of a rush job when they were like caring for the body. So they had kind of traditions. They would wrap the body. They'd put spices and um, perfumes and things like that so the body wouldn't get too gross. It was just the way they did it, right? We do weird things like that too. We embalm bodies. We put them on display for people to see it, it, you know, at um, funeral homes and stuff. So we have weird traditions. This was their weird tradition. The women are coming back now to the grave on the third day. That's where we pick up the story. They're trying to uh, take better care of the body. Verse five, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. They've discovered an empty tomb and the angel's saying, don't, don't be afraid. Jesus has risen. Now they'd been told already. Jesus had already told them that he was gonna rise from the dead, but they're still freaked out. They're still confused. So he has to say, don't be afraid. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Something I like to point out often when you're comparing histories, most histories that we understand to be falsified for the purpose of propaganda have these things in the story that smooth out the story that make it more believable. The gospel accounts are full of unbelievable anomalies. They're full of things that don't make sense unless they're true, right? Uh, If you're going into a court of law, you want to put on your best face and you want to kind of make things seem believable. Here we have women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. But in both Jewish tradition and Roman tradition, women were not counted as worthy witnesses, and we would say that's dumb. Women should be counted as worthy witnesses, but in this culture, they weren't. What does Christianity do? Christianity says, we're going to make women the first witnesses. Jesus honors the women. And this also shows the journalistic integrity of these documents, right? We're not lying about the story. We're saying, here's the story. Here's how it went down. And most of the men involved were like, well, I wouldn't have made the women the first witnesses, but that's what Jesus chose to do. And this is the real story. This is the anomaly of what actually took place. We're not going to cover this over, wallpaper it, try to fix the things that didn't fit that culture. No, we're just going to show it exactly as it took place. And these women are the first witnesses. The angels talk to them. Jesus appears to them. They say, go and tell the others about what you've seen. This stuff is amazing. And this is the turn in the story. Again, Remember what it's like to be a first century person. You know that people don't rise from the dead. You know that this is not the normal way that things happen. And yet Jesus rises from the dead 
proving that he's actually defeated death once and for all. Proving that he has power over death. Proving that, as Hebrews says, he's got the power of an unstoppable, undefeatable life. That, that he is the king of the universe. And so, again, as we look at this, this should bolster our own perseverance. This should bolster our confidence that Jesus is someone I can trust. That Jesus is that hero I've been looking for. Coming out of the tragedy, I thought everything was going wrong because it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't the success I was looking for. I didn't want to go through the valley to come back up to the peak. But here in the resurrection, we see that no, even though you went through the tragedy of this death, of this terrible thing, whatever it is that you've experienced, there's still hope. There's still somewhere that God is taking us. One of the most common metaphors for this in the Old Testament, it's not a metaphor, this happened literally in people's life, but it's a metaphor for tragedy is barrenness. Again and again in the Old Testament, we see these women who can't have children, who feel like they can't do what they're supposed to be doing. They can't uh, share this love. They can't grow a family. They're heartbroken over it. And God comes to them and says, I'm going to I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you children. You're going to have a family. And it's through that resurrection family, through that miracle family, that we're going to change the world. It starts with Abraham. This, this theme comes up in many of the families throughout Scripture. So much so that in Isaiah 54, 55, and 56, we see God saying, this new covenant that I'm going to make in the future is going to be so powerful that men that can't have children and women that can't have children are going to have spiritual children are going to be fruitful because everyone will be fruitful in the kingdom of God. Let me put it another way to to go back to the tragedy theme. The new covenant, the new life that Jesus gives us is so powerful that no matter what tragedy you've experienced, God can turn that for good. No matter what difficulty you've gone through, in all things, God is working out good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he can turn whatever you've gone through? Again, we don't, we don't want to step over the line into the weirdness of saying, so therefore that tragedy was good. That was awesome. Again, we don't want to lie about it. We want to say that, that abuse or that pain or that disease, that was horrible. That was wrong. That was evil. But God can work good through those things. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The resurrection proves that. The resurrection demonstrates that. So, 1 Corinthians says it this way. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 15, this is all about the resurrection. This is all about this anomaly of life out of death. And Paul says, therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this gives us confidence that God can actually use the bad things that we've gone through. He can take that and he can use that as an opportunity for us to minister to others so we can sow spiritual seeds into people's lives. We can be with them. We can love them. We can serve them. We can encourage them with the words of the gospel and God will bring life out of those dead seeds. God will produce resurrection life as we minister to others. And this folds us right into the last point. Point three, he saves us into a mandate. So as I said before, we want success, but our surprising Savior gives us tragedy. We want normalcy, but our surprising Savior gives us anomaly. And then finally, we want independence, right? You can be honest with me. You want to do your own thing, right? But God calls us into a family He calls us into an organization. He calls us into a mission. He gives us a mandate. The dictionary definition of mandate is this, an official command or instruction from an authority. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it's often referred to as the Great Commission. These guys are worshiping Jesus, says in verse, let's back up to verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That little verse always encourages me. I hope it encourages you. We're still trying to figure this out, right? We're just like they were, worshiping and doubting. 
Every time I worship, I'm finding great relief in the resurrection and power of Jesus Christ. And I'm saying, but what about next week? Or how's this thing going to work out, right? So they worshiped, but some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He calls us into this mandate, this commission. He gives you a job to do. He doesn't set you free from sin so you can go do whatever you want to. It's a freedom to serve. It's a freedom to fulfill the mandate that you were built for, that you were designed for. And so as a church, we often talk about finding a place to serve. This is so important. Serving alongside other brothers and sisters, serving your neighbors, serving your family, serving other people at work, fulfilling the mandate. The command is make disciples. Verse 19, it says, go therefore and make disciples. Uh, Grammatically then, all the other stuff is kind of like how we make disciples. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus. So we should be students of Jesus. Jesus, you saved me. I'm going to follow you. And then Jesus says, now go make other disciples of Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we do that by going. We, we go out of our comfort zone. We cross the street. We start conversations with people. We, we meet people. We invest time in people we already know. We ask hard questions. We offer to pray for people. We serve people. These are all ways that we go. And as we're going, this is a way to make disciples. It says, then you baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptizing is the way that Christians come out of the closet publicly and are identified with Jesus. They act out death and resurrection in the waters of baptism. They act out the cleansing, the washing away of sins. And what we're saying is we act that out in baptism as we're saying, Jesus, I belong to you. We're identifying ourselves with him. We're joining his cause We're stepping into the mandate that he calls us to. And then he says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's all he asks. Just obey everything he's ever said, okay? (laughs) That's all he's calling you to. That's why we study his word every week. That's why we seek to understand him. We do it out of joy because we know he's good. Before I knew that God was good, before I understood the free grace of salvation that he offered to me, I was scared to do what he said because I thought doing what he said would ruin my life. I thought doing what he said would ruin my fun. I thought doing what he said would uh, ruin my day. But now that I actually know that he gave himself to die for me and he rose from the dead, I have confidence in him. Now, does that mean I perfectly obey every time? No, but it's definitely changed my heart posture towards God. Now I want to obey him. I don't always perfectly obey him, but now I want to do what he says. He says, teach them to obey and then finally, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We're, we're not on our own. Jesus is with us. He's with us by his Holy Spirit. If you trust in Jesus, you have his Holy Spirit. No matter how much you can see that Holy Spirit, you have his Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit should lead to things like joy and patience and kindness in our lives. But it's also a power that we have to fulfill the mandate he's called us to. So if this seems impossible, fulfilling this mandate of making disciples, know that number one, you're right, it is impossible apart from Jesus being with us. But Jesus is with us. So what seems impossible, right? What seems surprising, Jesus is with you. He gives you his spirit. He joins us together in a new family made up of every person and tribe in the world. And he says, I want you to join together and fulfill this mandate. What are some practical ways that we can do this? Well, I think first of all, to recognize our resistance to it. Um, I was going to pick on the younger generations, which is a common practice for us cranky older people. But I thought, you know what? Um, Gen X, my generation is included in this. Gen X the millennial generation and Gen Z are possibly the three softest generations that the United States of America has ever seen. And I think we need to recognize that, that we've grown up with more wealth and more ease and less difficulty than any other generation. 
Does that mean we've never gone through hard things? No, we've all suffered abuse. We've all suffered injustice. We've all gone through difficulty in this world. I'm not saying that we haven't. But we should recognize where we sit in world history and how much we resist being called into this army, being committed to follow Jesus. We have to recognize that we're kind of used to having our own independence. Another way to say it is we're possibly the most individualistic generations that have ever lived. We're used to doing our own thing. But Jesus calls us into a family. He says, I'm calling you to hard work on my team, and I'm going to empower you to fulfill that hard work. One of the famous illustrations of this was Ernest Shackleton is the guy that uh, made it to, what is it, South America, Antarctica? I guess it's Antarctica, not South America. It's a little farther than South America. <laughs> I was like, somewhere down there, sorry, I have this generalized brain, way down there, Antarctica. And this is this ad, I think I got a picture of, this is like a fake picture of an ad. This isn't the real ad, but it's, you know, supposed to look like an ad. It says, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. It's famous because he was just forthright. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm inviting you to go on a great adventure with me. Most of you are probably going to die. Anybody want to sign up? Anybody want to join? And in a very similar way, that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, hey, I, I died for you, so you can trust me. Now I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. To go out and die for others, knowing that you've got resurrection life, knowing that your future with me is secure. Do you want to join me? in my worldwide cause to love people and serve people for no immediate gain, but for heavenly reward, knowing that it's worth it because you can trust me because I died for you, because I delight in you, because I love you. This is the mandate he calls us to. Here's a simple way to start as we join his mandate. Start by praying for your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Just start praying for them and opportunities will arise opportunities to serve them, opportunities to talk to them, opportunities to go deeper in your relationships. Start by praying. Start praying now about linking arms with one or two other believers. One of the things we really want to emphasize uh, emphasize because of the pandemic is just getting with one or two other Christians for prayer and accountability. Read the scripture together, prayer and accountability. We think it's kind of pandemic proof, right? You can do this no matter how the regulations go up and down about Uh, large groups getting together because we're talking about a very, very, very small group, just two or three people. You can do this with social distance. You can do this with masks. Getting with just one or two other people, praying for each other, sharing how your week is going, looking at the scriptures together. Start praying about opportunities to do that. And then finally, I would say start working on a personal family and mission statement. How, How does your personal calling intersect with the mission of Jesus? the mandate that he calls us all into to make disciples, to multiply followers of Jesus. You've, you've got a job. You've got a neighborhood. You've got hobbies. You have a family. How's God going to use your family or your hobbies or your gifts or your loves in service of his kingdom? Start working on that. Start sketching that out. Start working on a personal mission statement that aligns with Jesus's mission, his mandate. So we'll, we'll wrap up here. We have a surprising Savior. We have a Savior who's saved us through tragedy, through uh, the anomaly of the resurrection, through this beautiful mandate that he calls us into. Um, and it reminds us that good things always come in surprises. Uh, my wife and I, when we first went to seminary in St. Louis, we moved on campus. And so we were really looking forward to living on campus with other students that were studying to go into full-time ministry. thought that would be great. Uh, the first neighbor we met next door, um, he was from Bayou La Batterie. Y'all ever heard of that? That's where Forrest Gump had his shrimping boats, right? And so deep, deep, deep south, okay? So he was from Alabama, deep southern accent. And until this time, we thought that there was like normal Texas accents And then there were like dumb people that had deep South accents. So sorry, no offense to those of you from the deep South. We just didn't understand. We thought those were like fake accents on TV that people were faking. You know, like we didn't think people actually talked that way, right? 
And so this is our neighbor from Alabama, and he, he really talks that way. And we, I'm afraid we had some prejudice just based on accent, like, oh, he must not be very smart. You know, like, oh, these must be some backwards, difficult people. It's going to be hard for us to get to know them. We, we're, we're not expecting much out of these people, right? But these were the sweetest, most patient, really most brilliant people. He's now finishing his PhD. He's writing a book on Jack Miller. Um, Jack Miller's this great pastor. I quote him all the time. He says, cheer up, you're worse off than you think. But cheer up, Jesus loves you way more than you ever imagined, right? Like, I love that quote. I quote that all the time. There's a bunch of versions of it. Well, my friend is like doing his PhD, writing books. But when I first met him, that's not what I expected, right? That happens all the time. Well, how did we learn that this friend that on first interaction we thought was going to be dumb and backwards and weird, right? How did we learn that that's not who they were, but they were actually fantastic people that loved us, that prayed for us, that gave us advice, that were fun, that were intelligent, that were helpful, that came alongside us in some of our most difficult moments of time? Well, the way we learned that was we got to know them. We gave them a chance. And so I just want to stop with that last thought. The only way that Jesus is going to surprise you is if you get to know him. The only way he's going to change your mind about who God is is if you get to know him. You can start by asking him, say, Jesus, help me get to know you better. Reveal yourself to me. If you're real, if you're out there, show yourself to me. And I would encourage you to also take the follow-up step of, of reading the gospel accounts. You can start with the gospel of John or maybe the gospel of Mark. I think those are two easy ones to start with, but all four of them are fantastic. They tell the story of Jesus. Get to know Jesus. He's a surprising Savior, and he is worth it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your kindness. God, we thank you that you proved your kindness, that through the tragedy of the cross, you took our sins upon yourself, but you give us resurrection life. Help us to live in the full power of that resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.